The California Academy of Sciences is one of California's oldest operating museums and research institutions. It is an invaluable repository of knowledge about the natural sciences. It's home to 47 million specimens and has hundreds of thousands of visitors per year. This week on Radio Bio, we had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Shannon Bennett, the Chief and Dean of Sciences at the Academy. She gave us all the behind-the-scenes scoops about the Academy of Sciences, as well as her own fascinating path into science. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Hello, and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Ronnie. And I'm your co-host, Nathaniel Brown. And uh, we are speaking today with Dr. Shannon Bennett uh, from the California Academy of Sciences. She is the Chief of Science and Dean of Science at the California Academy of Sciences. Uh, She's also a Patterson Scholar in Science and Sustainability at the Center. And uh, she's here today to talk with us about uh, her research on uh, diseases, disease transfer from uh, animals to humans, and uh, specifically uh, dengue virus, Zika virus, chikungunya, and mosquito-borne diseases. Um, hello, uh, Dr. Bennett. Thank you for coming here. Hi, Nat, and hello, Ronnie. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank it seems you. like your research is both fascinating and kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot a lot of hazards when I do field research. For oh, example, sure. many mosquito bites that I always wonder, what did I just get? <laughs> is this the one? <laughs> so, do you, so do you study mostly the... Um, transmission and epidemiology side of things, or are you more on the mechanistic biological side of things? So I actually study the genetics of the virus and the evolution, and that does pull in questions around transmissibility, kind of the population genetics of the virus and how different strains move around and how transmissible they might be and which ones might replace other strains. And I also try to use changes that I see in the genomes of the viruses and look at how they evolved, maybe how quickly they evolved to infer mechanism. Oh, interesting. If I see changes in the part of the virus that binds with the host cell receptor, then I do try to infer back what kinds of mechanisms, like host binding efficiency, might be driving the evolution of the virus. And then I have a little wet lab at the Academy, California Academy of Sciences, where a biosafety level two lab where we can study virus phenotype after we've identified genotypes of interest. Wow. So it sounds like you have a good complement of uh, computational biology and experimental methods. Uh, Do you like that aspect of science? Yes, I always tell people when they're considering a grad career to be inspired by your question, but also make sure you can live with the day-to-day. So I love getting on the computer. I love running computational models and doing the sort of the bioinformatics side, but I also love field work. I love going out and collecting mosquitoes. I partner with clinicians, so I get lots of human samples. I'm not really a fan of lab work. So, you know, you got to know that about yourself. you got to own it, right? I'm the kind of cook that's a pinch of this and a pinch of that, and being a slave to the rigid protocols of lab work, it tamps my joy down a little bit. But I have good people that I work with to do lab work. Could you tell us a little bit more about the California Academy of Sciences? Yeah. So the California Academy of Sciences was founded in 1853, so right after the gold rush. And it was really founded by community scientists, like people that had day jobs as 
doctors or lawyers, but were also naturalists. And they began, this was right after the gold rush in, the, in 49, so they were seeing the transformation of the state. And so they began to collect evidence of what life was like during this period of transformation. So they collected fossils, minerals, uh, plants and animals and began the foundation of the academy. So the academy is actually a research collection. It started that way. Uh, and researchers that used the collection to understand the change in the state. And then it was only in the 70s, 1970s, that we actually opened up a lobby where public could come and see the collection. We had a mastodon on display, for example. Um, and many people that go to university might be familiar with their university museum. It's definitely not a, a place to engage the public. It's usually only for researchers uh, and uh, not welcoming that way. So what's really exciting about being at the Cal Academy is that we have grown since those origin days into a place that does welcome the public and connect with the public and do it in a way that really tries to inspire people to want to learn and love and share science. And it's multi-generational. We try to be, be there for everybody. People come with their families. And we still do the basic science. That we create original knowledge through research. A lot of the work we do on the science side is using our collections to understand life in the past to project how life will be sustained in the future. And, um, but it's really great to work at a place where you can then share that with the public, with artists that are really good at telling story. Yes, I, I visited the California Academy of Sciences, and it's, I, it's a wonderful museum. I mean, I, I guess I, I didn't really understand that it was primarily a research, research center. And uh, it's, it's, as you said, like since the 70s, it's really grown in this incredible sort of public space to uh, share science and, and, and scientific ideas. Yeah, but it's sitting, that, that, that beautiful venue to go and celebrate and get inspired by science is sitting on 46 million physical specimens. Whoa. Yes. That we spend a huge amount of time and money taking care of. And uh, it's an incredible treasure trove that holds the key to life on our planet, right? It, it holds physical specimens that we could get a genome from or look at the proteomic makeup of and work at mechanism for why and how life was adaptive in the past and how it might be in the future. We have many extinct species that were denizens of California that are now gone. And, and even now we're trying to uh, recreate the San Francisco dune systems and put a butterfly in that system. It's necessary, but the San Francisco version has gone extinct. Mm. We have it in our collection. It was last seen over 100 years ago. And we're using the genome from that ancient specimen to guide how we would regenerate a San Francisco that's healthy and resilient and resi regenerative against climate change in the future. That's so, so cool. Yeah this, yeah, this sort of bioremediation sounds really fascinating and cutting yeah. edge. Yeah, but we need that information of the past to look forward to the future. How much of your personal research uh, is public-facing or featured in some of the museum exhibits or museum activities? So when I came to the Academy in 2011, that's when I started, and I pitched to the hiring committee all the great ways that we could bring viruses to life in a positive way to people on the public floor. It turns out it's really hard <laughs> to 
connect people with their virums in a public setting that uh, doesn't uh, that that would you know really probably necessitate a lot of models for example i still have my hopes and dreams that we will set up an, a permanent exhibit to explore the microbiome of our living world with people through models maybe but at the moment uh, i have a um uh, uh, little bits and pieces of my research on the public floor. One instance is that I have an exhibit that uh, it's in our Color of Life exhibit in the East Hall, and it talks about color in our um, in our world. And viruses are actually too small to have color. Right. Yes. And uh, believe me, my whole family always buys me virus stuffies. I now have a COVID stuffy, uh, <laughs> and they're always very colorful, and they even have eyes. And of course, viruses are too small to have color, right? but we use color, we label them with color, and these colors are often fluorescent so that we can detect virus with the eye through a light microscope, albeit, but at least we can detect viruses with light um, brokering methods. But uh, so this little exhibit talks about why viruses are too small to have color, but we can use color to see viruses uh, under certain conditions. Yes. So how did you get uh, involved in this path? How did you get started? So um, I, I think it's really important for uh, people, but particularly students coming through and trying to decide what they want to do with their life, to, to not feel like they have to decide early, right? Like I think there's this idea that uh, the most successful scientists, like they knew since they were five years old that they wanted to do this kind of science and they dedicated their whole lives. And that was not me. And that's actually not most people. Uh, I actually wanted to be a park ranger for most of my life because I just really love being outside and, and I love nature. And uh, it wasn't until I was in college that I really decided, I and late high school, that I wanted to be uh, a theater person. And I really just decided I would do theater. And then uh, in college, I had an opportunity to, I was interested in biology also, but I was 19 and I got a volunteer opportunity in West Africa. So speaking of travel, I went, I'm Canadian. I went to my local Canadian travel clinic and I got all my anti-malarials and my, my basic vaccinations. I got my yellow fever vaccine at the time. And I uh, headed off to Liberia, West Africa, and within a few weeks, I got malaria. Oh, man. And, and everybody said, ah, these malarias, uh, this plasmodium, and the dominant species was plasmodium falciparum. Here, Dr. Bennett talks about her experience with malaria, caused by an infection with plasmodium, a genus of unicellular parasites that infect blood. The development of plasmodium begins in an insect host, typically mosquitoes, and then can be injected into humans from a mosquito bite. The result is a serious infection that affects about 240 million people worldwide, mostly in Africa. And they said, oh, no, this has been resistant to that anti-malarial for at least six or eight weeks. <laughs> oh, like, that fast. who didn't get that memo? And... Wow, that is fast, right? So it was my first introduction to evolution in real time, microbial resistance, and uh, how it personally impacted me. So over the course of the next few months while I was there, I got malaria, uh, I got amoebic dysentery, Oof. and Oof. I contracted a staph infection. Oh, no. And I was hospitalized in a leper colony. Oh, 
Wow. So I got, in a few months, I had a deep, profound, and personal experience with a mosquito-borne pathogen, that's Plasmodium falciparum, uh, with amoebic dysentery, which is Entamoeba histolytica. It's a generalist, single-celled eukaryote like Plasmodium, but it can it does fecal-oral transmission. And, uh, and then a staph infection, which was probably from an infected cut. So 50% of us have a commensal bacterium, Staphylococcus aureus, that mm -hmm. uh, lives on our skin. And it was an opportunist, so. Staph is short for Staphylococcus, a genus of bacterium. As Dr. Bennett mentions, staph bacteria are often participating in a commensal interaction with humans. She is referring to the fact that a large percentage of the human population have Staphylococcus bacteria living on their skin, and most of the time, there is no infection or problems. However, these bacteria, while usually commensal, are opportunists, meaning that if you get a cut or a scrape, they can take that opportunity to invade your tissue instead of keeping to themselves. Uh, and then I was in a leper colony where, you know, we now know that leprosy, the agent of leprosy is not highly infectious, but there's some maybe host genetic predispositions and these really long incubation periods. So I was, I was convalescing. I, while I was in Africa, I was actually running a theater program hmm. and teaching grade five math. So I was getting my theater itch scratched while being a, a host on a whole new level. And so <laughs> a, after that, I decided I wanted to study parasite evolution because of all these really interesting modalities of the way they were transmitting and the way they'd evolved in those systems where they transmitted. Wow. That's fascinating. And it's also incredibly impressive <laughs> I to survived. have recovered from this. I lost a hell of a lot of weight. My parents didn't recognize me I when can I only got imagine. Back. Yeah. yeah. Any one of those is... That's a serious tough. affliction. Yeah. <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. But now I'm at an institution that actually has uh, opportunities for theater. So I feel like I've come home. And and how would you ever how would you ever chart that course on purpose, right? That right. that somebody that cared about uh, a theater as a way of communicating could land themselves at a scientific research institution that also had this strong uh, mission to engage with people in different ways. Yes, and so it seems like um, as a science communicator, you get to build on that love you have of theater, and get, you get to communicate a, a story to all the public, you know, children yeah. to adults to the elderly, and you get to share your passion for these topics. Yeah. So one thing I do at the Academy, so I talked a little bit about some of the more physical exhibits, but we also do a lot of programming where uh, scientists can go out on the public floor and interact with kids or with uh, adults. We have a nightlife program where 21 and over every week on Thursdays, people can come and meet, meet a scientist. And so it's been really great. I've done everything from, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a virologist, but I also appreciate the entire microbiome. So I will... Uh, I will help people meet their face mites by pulling their eyebrow hairs and showing them under a microscope and watching people on dates meet <laughs> their partner's mite and how that goes after that, I don't even want to say. I've seen some pretty horrified looks on newly dating couples when they meet each other's mites. Uh, to, I'll bring, a, I have a small uh, mosquito colony of local um, mosquitoes and I bring them out and I blood feed them and I show the kids the, the larvae, the mosquito larvae. And, you know, mosquito larvae live in water. They don't have gills like fish. Uh, they, they breathe. 
and they have a little snorkel that uh, pierces the surface of the water and they breathe. And the snorkel actually comes out of their rear and their heads hang down. And you watch a kid's face when you point out that this is a butt snorkeler (laughs) and that they can breathe and eat at the same time because most kids, we forget, but most kids know what it's like to try to eat and breathe at the same time, right? They're coughing, they're throwing up, they're sputtering. The mosquito larvae can do that. Like that is a whole level of sophistication that you have to admire. Yeah. Do you think that, um, you know, given the, uh, all of the pl- publicity surrounding COVID and other disease transmissions, do you think that the public has a better appreciation for viruses and microbiomes now? Or do you think it's complicated the picture when trying to communicate that some viruses and microbiomes are actually good for you or good for the environment? So before, early in the early days of COVID, um, uh, there was a, a paper published that talked about public opinion and science and, and public funding as well. And it showed how every time we had a major epidemic or pandemic, public, um, uh, uh, the, the positive feeling of in the public's minds for science increased. This is the only pandemic I've ever lived through. Well, I haven't lived through a lot, but this is a, this is a pandemic, that these were deepest, through time, through the recorded history of the of the Western world, but uh, this I feel, and I haven't seen the follow up study that actually we're in the darkest time when it comes to public understanding and a positive public feeling for science, and and I uh, don't understand the drivers, uh, and I'm hoping that as uh, we get our knowledge around COVID solidified, uh, that that will turn around. I, I think that when, you, when you're dealing with a new pathogen and you're facing uncertainty and you are wrong, we scientists know we are, like everything's a hypothesis and you always improve on your knowledge and you often go down wrong directions and have new discoveries that you weren't intending to have. But I think somehow we've built up in the public's eye through a long history of how we present ourselves, that science is infallible and has the answers and nothing is going to show you up uh, than a, better than a new pathogen. <laughs> so is that what, what, you know, what's the cause of a lot of, I think, uh, unfortunately, public confusion about the, our relationship to the microbial world and our relationship with the process of science? Absolutely. I agree. I agree. I, I agree that it's sort of concerning that there might be some mistrust or even aggressiveness towards science and, 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 and sort of this idea that, that science is a public benefit. It's a journey. Science is a journey. Uh, yes. And it seems like at the California Academy of Sciences, you get a great opportunity to sort of emphasize that science is a journey and that it's a human institution and that it's a collaborative effort and that it's, there's a lot of room for creativity um, and in, you know, a, a lot of ways to express like a, a, an idea like disease transmission or the evolution of viruses. Um, and so it requires a lot of different voices, a lot of like, creative people to come, not only to perform the science, but also to communicate that science to, to the public and to other researchers. Yeah. yeah, there's so many opportunities to not only, you know, communicate the creative process of science and the highly collaborative process, but to show it because it is a beautiful place 
full of artistic renditions of what of science and the stories of science and those artistic renditions are are visual arts they're also uh, other kinds of creative arts like performing arts or auditory so um people get I, I would like to think that people get it both in intellectually when they hear, hear the content which is uh, really focused on the creative process of science and the collaborative process, but then also see it all around them, right, in a really fun and inspiring and celebratory way. So I, some of the wonderful things that I often see on the public floor is seeing families share science. So I might see a little kid in, you know, grade two explaining to their grandparent that that doesn't even speak English uh you know what what this display is all about or what excites them and to see it from their eyes and to have them give that information intergenerationally is a really wonderful experience. Dr. Bennett can you talk a little bit about how the California Academy of Sciences uh, researches climate change? I'd love to. I mentioned that the California Academy of Sciences has a huge collection of 46 million specimens that are actual physical evidence of life on Earth back through time. And so when we think about climate change, we're actually uh, thinking about the other side of that coin, which is the change in life forms and living life forms. So we call it biodiversity, right? The, 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 the different forms and function of the elements of living systems. And so a lot of people that think about climate change acknowledge that there's sea level rise, which is going to impact coastal communities of humans and species. And there's snow melt that's going to Im impact uh, the water dynamics in downstream communities. So we actually look at the species of living organisms through time that might respond to that physical event of, of a change in climate. And we... Uh, because some of the most important functions of these uh, parts of our world that are changing due to climate change are going to lose some of their function. That is what we try to measure by looking at the species. So when people say that sea surface temperatures will warm as a result of climate change, we ask the question, what are those coral reef systems doing to respond to sea surface temperature warming or ocean acidification? Are we losing species? Are we losing reef building species? Are the fishes no longer um, using reefs as a crash to then seed the rest of the ocean? So uh, we have a huge emphasis on looking at the species that might be sentinels or canaries in the coal mine for why climate change will destroy the functioning of our living systems. It occurs to me that um, over the next few decades, um, large events like climate change or you know, increased uh, disease transmission due to globalization, um, these will provide challenges but also opportunities for the public to maybe support science more. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast that you had concerns that this current era maybe was marked by public um, dissatisfaction or, or um, loss of interest in science, or even sometimes aggression. Do you think that um, the, in, the institution of science and the people who compose it um, will rise to the challenge of engaging the public and convincing the public that science is worth supporting? I mean, I think it has to happen, right? We, we all come from this 
uh, cultural heritage where scientists are in this sort of uh, exclusive sector of society and they wear white lab coats and they have no social skills and I think it's and I always, I have this pet project where I want to take uh, I, I want to look at how Hollywood has a history of vilifying scientists I mean I have, don't, can't tell you how many bad guys were scientists in, in, in Hollywood movies it's it's a really long list but um, at the California Academy of Sciences we are engaging the public scientist to scientist. Science is a process, it's a way of thinking, and we need critical thinking more than ever in this society. And we need to right the wrongs of uh, science as a bastion for uh, entitled white person thinking and make it a welcoming place for all people to participate in. It needs to be given away, not monetized, and it needs to be something we all do together. And I think that's what this society needs. And I'm happy to say I have many partnerships at universities that also feel like training scientists to be scientists, science communicators is not just a nice to have, but it's core. It's core to being scientists in the way that we need science in a changing future now and going forward. Agreed. Awesome. Thank you. From contracting multiple life-threatening diseases all at once to showing people their face mites, Dr. Shannon Bennett has had a fascinating path through science. Her work studying diseases, as well as her critical role as a science communicator at the Academy of Sciences, remains as important as ever in our post-pandemic world. We also got to dive into the world of museum repositories and how important they are not just for informing the public, but also as places that conduct research. Next time you're in the Bay Area, be sure to give the California Academy of Sciences a visit. Interviewers for this episode were Nat Brown and Ronnie Hall. Layla Wahab was editor and artist for this episode. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcast at www.radiobio.net.